everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague, Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. We hope that you and your families are all staying safe and healthy out there. This month, we are going to go over some of the hottest topics that we are getting calls about on the legal hotline. Can't wait to do that. But first, maybe the hottest topic of all, as a reminder, in case you missed it, the new RPA is here. That is right. After a couple years of buildup, the new RPA has been released. It is out now in zip form or whatever forms program you use to access uh, all of your forms. So when you go to pull up the RPA, you will be looking at the new version. Um, hopefully, everyone's had an opportunity at this point to get familiar with it. Maybe you've taken a class, maybe you've watched a webinar, but if not, it is not too late. We still have so many resources that are available to you. Mm -hmm. We have a one-stop shop on the website. It's at car.org slash risk management slash RPA 2021. That's car.org slash risk management slash RPA 2021. And I will put a link to that in our show notes as well. And that is the place to go to see sample versions of the forms, to see a list of every form that was revised or updated, um, to sign up if you want to take a four-hour comprehensive class on a new RPA um, taught by me or Neil Kalin or Gov Hutchinson. Um, we have a couple coming at the very end of 2021, and then we'll be having a whole bunch more in the first part of 2022. If you don't want to take a four-hour long class, we also have a series of webinars available for you, completely free, included as a number of benefits, available on our website where you can do a one hour overview of just the most significant changes in the contract. Or if you wanna do more of a deep dive in you know, little bites, we did a series, what we called our RPA Spotlight Series over the course of about eight weeks this fall, going over a couple of pages of the contract at a time in one hour segments, really digging into all of the changes. And we also have a book. We have your guide to the California Residential Purchase Agreement. So you can read. Uh, about the new forms. You can watch some webinars, you can take a class, whatever works for you. Um, we have options available. So I encourage everybody, if you haven't had the chance yet, now is definitely the time before we get into the crush of the new year to really get familiar with the new RPA um, and looking forward to it. Yeah, and that is really a one-stop shop that it seems to have All every in one kind place. of it, you know, every option for whatever type of study you like, whatever works well for you. Um, and, yeah. it, and it's great that it has all of the form revisions because obviously we had to revise a lot of the forms due to the new RPA. Yeah. A lot of the substance is the same. So you're not, it's not a wealth of, you know, new, new material, but mm -hmm. a lot of things are small distinctions and so forth. So you should really yes. make yourself aware of that. Absolutely. Yeah. There were 92 forms that were revised, which is a very scary number, <laughs> but the vast majority of those are incredibly minor revisions. Yeah. Uh, there's really fewer than 20 forms that uh, have substantive revisions to them. So I realized that fewer than 20 is still a large number, yeah. but it's a lot smaller than 92. Exactly. <laughs> so it's manageable. It really is. Yes. So yeah, uh, everyone go to one more time, car.org slash risk management slash RPA 2021 and get all caught up on all things new RPA. Perfect. And now shall we get into the meat and bones of this podcast? Let's start talking hot topics. All right. 
So our first hot topic today is a question that I know you and I both get on the legal hotline all the time, <laughs> as do all of the hotline attorneys, which is what happens when one side or the other cancels the contract, but the parties can't agree about what's going to happen to the earnest money deposit. You know, what happens? You right. end up in this kind of limbo period where you have a canceled contract, but you don't have a canceled escrow because while either the buyer, you know, they can unilaterally cancel the contract on their own by the good faith exercise of any contingency that they haven't mm -hmm. removed. And the seller, of course, can cancel the contract if they follow the appropriate procedures, if buyer's not performing, you know, issue a notice to perform, and then a cancellation. Right. Or closing as, if they don't or, close. Yeah. If one side or the other fails to close, then demand a close escrow cancellation. There's multiple ways in which either the buyer or the seller can, like I said, unilaterally on their own cancel the contract. Mm -hmm. But cancellation of escrow is always going to require mutually signed instructions or a judicial or arbitration award, like a binding order from a judge or an arbitrator. Right. So you know, if you don't have one of those things, escrow is just going to sit there holding that money until the two parties come to an agreement or until they go through the legal dispute resolution process. Right. And sometimes one of those things is going to take some time. And so the question we get is, well, what does the seller have to sit and wait? Can the seller put their house back on the market? Right. Um, and the answer generally with a whole bunch of uh, caveats that I'm about to give is generally yes. If the contract, as long as the contract has been canceled by one side or the other, you know, you're no longer in contract, which means the seller could put the property back active on the market. Right. However, after one of the proper ways of canceling that we just correct spoke. after one of the proper ways. And so, you know, if you look at our cancellation of contract form, it's it's a it's one form, but it's kind of two in one. You mm -hmm. know, the top half paragraph one that's canceling the contract, canceling the agreement. And maybe the contract's being canceled by mutual agreement. Although if that were the case, they probably wouldn't be fighting over the deposit. <laughs> exactly. So probably, probably the top half of the contract is only going to be signed by one side, mm -hmm. whichever side's canceling, either buyer or seller. But then the bottom half, that's the part that uh, cancels the escrow and is going to require mutual instructions for the escrow to actually be canceled. Yeah. So, you know, there's really, you have essentially four options for what can happen with the deposit when the contract is canceled. The seller can agree to give it back to the buyer. The buyer can agree to release it to the seller. The parties could agree to split it. Or what we're kind of talking about today is what happens if they can't agree. And so there is a final section on the cancellation of contract form where the parties acknowledge that the contract is canceled and that their intent even is to cancel the escrow, but they also acknowledge that they, you know, that the deposit is going to be held until subsequent mutual instructions are issued or there is one of those binding awards. So, you know, ideally that's how you'd set it up. You'd have, okay, one side canceled, but we're fighting over the deposit. So you'd fill out the bottom portion of the cancellation of contract saying, uh, what's described as a partial release saying, um, okay, we're acknowledging the cancellation of the contract, 
but we're not agreeing who's going to get the deposit. So we're still going to have to fight that out. Exactly. And so while the, that fight is happening or that dispute, like we said, seller can put the property back on the market, but you really need to do two things. You need to let these prospective buyers know that this, you know, any future offer now, this, this contract, or excuse me, this property going back on the market is subject to cancellation of the prior escrow. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure, you know, people out there listening, you've probably seen that language on MLS listings. I get the sense it's pretty commonly used, mm-hmm. you know, they put it back on the market, subject to cancellation of prior escrow. Very good. But then you also need to make sure that any subsequent agreement, if the seller is eager to accept another offer, that that contract is, you know, basically, frankly, in backup position. So the backup offer addendum is really what you want to use until you have fully resolved this issue with the original buyer. So you could accept another offer, but it should be with form BUO, the backup offer addendum to say, okay, this offer, we're accepting it, but it's again, subject to the cancellation and resolution. Now, the backup offer addendum by default says none of the time periods with the new buyer will begin until you have a full cancellation, including cancellation of escrow with the first buyer. So, you know, you may need to sort of work with the the subsequent buyer and see if they want to begin their time periods earlier or, you know, that, that is negotiable, but ultimately it's really important to have that backup offer language in there because the last thing you want mm-hmm. is for a situation where the seller accepts a second offer and then that first buyer, you know, comes back and tries to cause problems. And, you know, the absolute worst case scenario records all those pendants and right. prevents the sale from going forward. And people ask me all the time, well, you know, can they do that? And so, well, Unfortunately, anyone can do anything more or exactly. less. Exactly. How do you, you stop know? them from doing that? <laughs> Even, they may not have a, have a good legal claim or basis to do so, but uh, that doesn't always stop people, as I, no. I'm sure pretty much all know. But that so, is why that BUO is wonderful, because it can protect your seller in the, in the event that a buyer does place, you know, a list pending. Exactly. Exactly. You hope that won't happen. It probably won't happen, no. but you always got to be prepared for worst case scenarios. And that way, if something like that happens, now the seller, thankfully, is at least not in breach with the second buyer, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of that issue. So yeah, because you know, the BUO starts with that language, you know, this is exactly cancellation of all prior escrows. So it's mm-hmm. fantastic and perfect for that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So can be done, but you yeah. got to follow all those steps. That's right. And as you mentioned, there's that last election that the buyer and seller can take to choose, you know, to wait until the dispute's resolved, et cetera, and they both sign off. But that also can, this whole scenario that um, you just talked about is also used when one or the other refuses to sign, right? What if that right. buyer says, I'm not signing that Exactly, yeah. you all together. Well, yeah, you can still, um, you know, unilaterally cancel if you cancel properly and then go into your new escrow with your BUO buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, becomes exactly. you know, both of those situations. So yeah, exactly. You always want to try to get the parties to sign, you know, at least the acknowledgement of the cancellation. But I know in the real world, uh, people get pretty mad at each other yeah. and sometimes <laughs> they won't sign anything. So yeah, sometimes the best you can do is have 
the top of the cancellation filled out for canceling the contract. You do that properly. If you can't get the other side to sign anything related to canceling the escrow, then it's just, you know, of extreme importance, although it's always important to make sure you use that backup offer addendum and, and protect the seller if they are ready to move forward with somebody else. So that's pretty good. That's that question, Ralph. Yeah. Another question we get quite often comes from listing agents and it's, my listing has expired. Can I earn a commission on a sale to a reserved buyer? And the answer is yes, but it begs the question, what is a reserved buyer? Um, a reserved buyer is an individual that a listing agent includes on a written list of prospective buyers who either physically viewed the property or made offers on the property during the listing period. These are called your reserved buyers. Now, CAR has a form to assist listing agents to create the written list of prospective buyers. We'll call it a buyer reservation list. Listing agents can use form NPB, Notice of Prospective Buyers, to create the reservation list. With this reservation list, a commission may be earned if the property sells to a buyer on the list after the listing period and during the reservation period. So the reservation period is determined by the seller and the listing agent in the RLA in section 3A2. It represents the number of days after the termination of the listing agreement that a listing agent may earn commission for reserved buyers. Any number of days may be agreed upon by the parties to the listing agreement. It is completely negotiable. Yes, and it is important if a listing agent wants to take advantage of this uh, protection, that there be a certain number of days filled in there. Um, Absolutely. I, right. I've unfortunately talked to a lot of members at the end of their listing period who have a long list of prospective buyers who go back to their listing agreement only to find out, oops, they left that line blank. There's no days written in and therefore they have no, you know, protected buyers period. And there. then the seller goes on to sell to one of those buyers property to one of those reserved buyers, either through themselves or through another agent and the listing agent's right to a commission is lost. Yep, absolutely. So we've discussed the first two things listing agent needs to do to reserve buyers. First, they must include the reservation period in the RLA in provision 3A2. And second, they need to create a list of prospective buyers using form NPB, Notice of Prospective Buyers. And the final step is to give the notice of prospective buyers to the seller prior to the end of the listing period. This is a really important step. If an agent fails to give the form to the seller prior to the expiration of the listing agreement, they waive their right to any reserved buyers. So it's really important to give it to them prior to the end of the listing period. Yeah, that's another yeah. another very common trap is if the listing expires and they try to give the list a week, a week later and now it's too late. Exactly. So not only do you have to fill in the RLA, you have to create that list of prospective buyers and give it to the seller. Then um, if a seller enters into a contract with a reserved buyer after that, during the reservation period that you've created and the property closes, the listing agent who provided the reservation list will have earned a commission. So it's that simple and that important. And Absolutely. that's pretty much it for that. That's it. All right. Our next topic we wanted to address today has to do with disclosures. So a question that we get all the time is how, how should a seller address or what does a seller have to disclose when it comes to 
problem neighbors or neighbors that they have problems with. And so, you know, I know it's kind of a fine line for people, you know, what's a personal issue, what's a disclosure item, but it's really important to remember that a seller's obligation is to disclose any and all material facts that could affect the value and desirability of the property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but if you have a next door neighbor who's a real problem, I think that might affect the desirability of the property. And so <laughs> I know sellers don't want to disclose things that might discourage mm-hmm. a buyer from buying, but that's that's kind of what disclosures are for, is so that the buyer can be fully informed. So mm-hmm. there's all kinds of neighbor or neighborhood issues that a seller needs to disclose. It could just be that the neighbor's a real jerk and they come over and, and yell at you about your property or, you know, mm-hmm. mow the lawn or rake the leaves. And, and, you know, that's something that would be worth mentioning. Maybe the neighbor is inconsiderate and they throw loud parties and they have tons of guests over and they plot, you know, park in front of your driveway or things like that. And that can be if you're in a condo, for example, upstairs, sure. you know, there's a lot of loud walking and noise mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Um, it could be if you have a neighbor, you know, either who's over maybe a backyard fence or maybe on an adjacent balcony, if they smoke and that's something you can smell from your property, Hmm. that's something that needs to be disclosed. If they, you know, run their sprinklers or their hose and there's water that comes onto your property. Um, and then definitely if there is say some sort of boundary line dispute, if you fight Mm -hmm. over the fence or trees or things that are along the property line, Mm -hmm. you know, those are really significant issues. So this is such an important issue. And these, these disclosures are so important that in the newly revised seller property questionnaire, the SPQ form, there's actually been a question added to the neighbors and neighborhood disclosure section to further draw out information. These have always been required disclosures, but we would get questions from people. Well, where do I mention this? Or how do I mention this? And paragraph 16 uh, of the seller property questionnaire now asks two questions. It asks generally if the seller's aware of neighborhood noise or nuisance issues in general, but it also asks the seller if they're aware of any past or present disputes or issues with the neighbor, which could impact the use and enjoyment of the property. Mm-hmm. So, and the key thing there is past or present. So even if it's an issue that happened in the past, um, you know, when you feel like it's been resolved, that's fantastic. And you can say that you feel like it's been resolved, mm-hmm. but if there has been an issue and definitely if there is an issue, then that's something that needs to be disclosed. And the seller property questionnaire is going to be the easiest place to do that. All right. I think that's all there's to say about that. Yeah, that's pretty clear and pretty straightforward. Yep. But a big problem and something that people, I think, really question whether or not they need to disclose because it seems they- like thing that the new people are they going to have a problem with this neighbor I don't know and you hope not and I've had (laughs) questions before where people say well you know I don't want to you know disclose you know maybe that's just neighborhood gossip or maybe this is a personal matter (laughs) and you know it's like we always say though err on the side of caution and by the if you're even if you're even wondering whether something should be disclosed you have your answer if it crosses your mind to disclose it disclose it Exactly. That's exactly right. And there are times when you may not have a problem with a neighbor, but the neighbor is a problem for the right. whole neighborhood. And and for whatever reason, it doesn't impact you so much. But mm-hmm. that's something that also it's needs to be disclosed. It's neighborhood-ish. Exactly. It's, you know, maybe your neighbor throws parties till 3 a.m., but you work overnight, so it doesn't bother you. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> but if you know <laughs> that they throw parties until 3 a.m. and everybody else in the neighborhood complains about it, 
that's still something you need to tell the new buyer. Exactly. All right, so on to the next question. Um, another very popular question. After acceptance, if the buyer does not place their earnest money deposit into escrow, can the seller simply cancel? Well, no. No is the answer. Um, <laughs> some agents seem to think that with no deposit, there's no consideration and thus the seller can simply cancel. That's but a this, common misconception. <laughs> it is. That's not so. Our, our contracts are bilateral agreements where the buyer and the seller make mutual promises to one another to buy the property and to sell the property. And that, among other things, acts as consideration for the contract. After acceptance, the seller must first deliver form NBP, notice to buyer to perform to the buyer. And only after the two days required by that notice would the seller have the right to cancel, assuming, of course, that the buyer failed to perform during that time and yeah. that, you know, they didn't put the deposit into escrow. <laughs> then you would be able to go ahead and cancel the contract. So right. this is a question we get a lot and it might come up in your upcoming transactions because yeah. sellers often think, well, he's not performing at all. Can we just cancel and move on to another buyer, which you might have in the wings still at that early stage of your transaction. Right. So but you got to go through this process first. Absolutely. And so what I tell uh, listing agents, if, if there's a concern, if you have, if, if you are the seller, you know, if you really want to try to limit the chance of something like this happening to you and really, you know, protect your seller the best you can, you know, our contract says that the buyer has three business days. It's the only place in the contract we refer to business days instead of calendar days. Mm -hmm. Buyer has three business days to get that earnest money deposit into escrow. If you want to hold them to that deadline, then two days prior to that third business day, you could give them the notice to perform in advance. You don't have to wait until the three days go by find out they didn't put it in and then wait some more, you know, in advance, you can just send the notice for form two days before the deadline. That way, if the deadline comes and goes and they have not performed, that money is not in escrow. Then on the fourth day, if the seller wanted to issue a cancellation and move on, that's something they could do. Exactly. And it's something to think about if the buyer or the buyer's agents giving you a lot of excuses and kind of the runaround mm. as to why things aren't yeah. happening, you know, <laughs> and, and then, well, we have the three days and so forth. If you kind of get that feeling, go ahead and give them the notice to perform. And then at least they have to do it, you know, within two days from whenever you do serve that notice. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Another hot topic <laughs> hotline question that we get all the time has to do with the interplay between various contractual time periods, by which I mean, they get to the, you know, the buyer, let's say, request the seller to do some repairs, the seller agrees, they will do those repairs. And then, but the seller also says, okay, buyer, you're at your contingency deadline, time to remove the contingencies. And buyers, I think, understandably get a little bit nervous and think, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't want to remove my contingencies, these repairs aren't done. And um, so the question becomes, can the buyer wait? What does the contract say? Does the buyer get to hold on to their contingencies until those repairs are completed? And the short answer is no. We're talking no, about no. two different sets of time periods and two different obligations. So if you request repairs and the seller agrees to provide those, the purchase agreement says that unless the parties agree to a different time frame, repairs shall be completed prior to the final verification of condition. So prior to the final walkthrough, which under the contract by default takes place within five days prior to 
scheduled closing. So mm -hmm. the deadline for the seller to complete any repairs, whether it's something they're fixing themselves or if they're paying to have termite clearance, whatever those are, the deadline for the seller to do that is by the time the final walkthrough takes place. But the buyer still has their own contractual deadlines as far as removing contingencies. So does that mean, oh, if they remove their contingency, then the seller can just blow off the repairs? Absolutely not. The seller, by agreeing to the repair, has created a contractual obligation for themselves. So the buyer, when they remove their contingencies, they are removing them basically on the basis of the seller agreeing that those repairs are going to be completed. Mm -hmm. So the buyer, if the repairs have been negotiated and the buyer is happy with what the sellers agreed to do, then at the deadline, time is up, buyer is expected to remove their contingency. Exactly. And I think that interplay with our form RR, the request for repair, it yeah. does say that buyer agrees to remove their inspection exactly. contingency if the seller does the repairs. So I think that kind of gives people the understanding that this is a bargain. That, you know, right. And yeah, which makes leverage, which you do if it's early enough in the contract period. You exactly. You lose that though if you know it's time to remove them anyway. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it makes sense because the seller doesn't want to agree to spend money on doing repairs if the buyer is going to later on say, "Well, I'm still not happy with the condition of the property. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cancel anyway." And now the seller spent that money, and the buyer's just walking away. So it yeah. it is an exchange. You know, it is a mm -hmm. an exchange. You know, in exchange for the seller saying, I will do this, buyer showing good faith, they are, like you said, in the request for repair, automatically, if the seller agrees to those repairs, buyer has to lift the invest, you know, their inspection contingency at that time. Right. So, um, but like I mentioned, you know, in the same paragraph of the contract where it says that repairs have to be completed before the final walkthrough, it also says that repairs have to be performed um, in a good and workmanlike manner and in compliance with all applicable laws. So, you know, the seller does have some pretty strong contractual obligations when it comes to taking care of those repairs that they agree to in a contract. That's exactly right. The quality and appearance of existing materials, that's that's important to people. Yes. And keeping in mind that some things are so old or out of date or whatever, you can't get a hold of them. <laughs> right. They have to do the best they can to match and anything. It, I always suggest go ahead and speak to the buyer. If you can't get something that's, you know, comparable, speak to the buyer and get some yeah. agreement. Give on them that. some options. Yeah. yeah. Before you just <laughs> do something and then it's horrible and they don't understand or what. Always a good piece of advice. Yeah. All right. So that's that. And we move on to yet another very um, frequent question. Mm -hmm. And that is, should a listing agent write a non-refundable deposit provision into a purchase agreement? Mm -hmm. And we get this question quite a lot. Actually, agents do this quite a lot, <laughs> um, you know, and then call us and tell us they've done it. But um, should they do be doing this? And um, the short answer is no, they should yes. not. The contract states that clauses included in the contract indicating that the deposit is non-refundable or forfeit for buyers that fail to complete the purchase are deemed invalid unless that clause independently satisfies the statutory liquidated damages requirements in the civil code. And you might say, well, 
how do I independently satisfy the statutory uh, liquidated damages clause in the civil code? But if your client's asking you that, the answer is recommend to your client that they seek a qualified attorney to create a clause for them that will satisfy the civil code relative to non-refundable deposits. But otherwise, you really should not be doing it. Suffice it to say that it's very difficult to, you know, meet the requirements in the code. And so anything written by agents in this regard would likely be held invalid. Exactly. And there's a reason why our, you know, our liquidated damages clause reads the way it does, because Mm -hmm. it complies with with the civil code, you know, requirements for liquidated damages and for handling deposits. And so, you know, chances are, whatever it is the clients don't like about that, very well might be because that's what's required to comply with the law. So like exactly like you just said, the last thing, you know, the, that agents want and the last thing we want for agents is for them to write something up at the request of their client. And then that turns out to be completely unenforceable. And now the client comes back and says, you did this, you know? No, exactly. And since it's never clear that it would be enforceable, it's a good idea to just leave it out. And if if they insist, they can go out and they can hire an attorney to to draft something custom for them, but realtors aren't going to be involved in that part of it. Right. And instead, what an agent can do is create a contract with no contingencies. Uh, obviously, then if the non-contingent buyer wants to cancel, he'd have no contingencies and no basis for doing so under the contract and his deposit would be at risk, which is what you're trying to do with that non-refundable deposit, you know, make it go to the seller if the mm-hmm. buyer defaults and fails to close. So, you know, there's a few exceptions to that. For example, where a seller fails to deliver a statutory or other material notice, the buyer would automatically get a right to review that notice. And for a short period of days, they'd have a right to cancel. But otherwise, removing all contingencies really serves as a good method of putting the buyer's EMD at risk of being lost if he does not close. And that said, I would quickly run through a couple of important points to consider when a buyer removes all contingencies with his or her offer. Um, in lieu of writing the non-refundable clause. uh, For sellers, listing agents should ensure that their sellers deliver all disclosures prior to acceptance of the offer. Because as I mentioned, if you deliver material or statutory disclosures after acceptance, the buyer will have an opportunity to cancel by contract and or by law. Uh For buyers, buyer's agents should check the boxes in the new RPA, section 3L, to remove the appraisal and loan contingencies and include form CR, contingency removal, to remove the rest of the contingencies as a part of his or her offer. Now that said, buyer's agents should also warn their buyers that their money will be at risk if they make non-contingent offers. So this is something that we do not recommend buyers do and agents should indicate that it's against their advice. And in fact, in the contract, in the new Mm -hmm. contract, the new RPA, This is stated in the sidebar of section L, which is the contingency section. So you can ensure your client reads that. And also you can give them form MCA, the market conditions advisory, Mm -hmm. which also has a whole section on non-contingent offers. Exactly. The the RPA throughout, exactly like you said, in in the sidebar in 3L, it specifically says that removing or waiving contingencies at the time of the offer is against an agent's advice. We warn about the risks of removing contingencies, you know, at tons of places. And I, I totally agree. The MCA is another very good form. You really can't say enough times to your client, hey, removing your contingencies is a big risk. You know, be sure you're aware of the potential consequences. And it's ultimately the client's choice. But you just want to make sure that you have advised them 
and and given them all the appropriate warnings. Exactly, but that would be the way to go instead of writing in those non-refundable, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, deposit provisions because those are probably going to be held invalid. Mm -hmm. All right, that pretty much wraps that question up. Yeah. So we have one more question uh, we wanted to address today, which is a very pretty common question that I get on my hotline quite a bit, actually, which is basically, what forms do I need for a for sale by owner transaction? So sometimes you might be working with a buyer who finds a property that they really love and are interested in, but that property is not on the market or it is you know, listed as for sale, but it's listed as a for sale by owner where there is no listing agent involved. Exactly. So we get a lot of questions from buyer's agents who want to know how to navigate that situation. And so you can uh, conduct a transaction that way. Uh, the seller, either side of the transaction really, but in this example, the seller doesn't have to have an agent representing them, mm-hmm. but there's going to be, you know, a couple of things you need to make sure to do in order to protect yourself and your clients a big one is that a lot of people aren't aware of. We actually have a form for this specific situ- situation mm-hmm. called the seller non-agency agreement. And on the flip side, if you find yourself as a listing agent with an unrepresented buyer, we have a buyer non-agency as well. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, seller non-agency basically advises the seller that you, agent representing the buyer, represent the buyer exclusively and that the seller is choosing to proceed unrepresented, they have the right to an agent. And if they require assistance, they should go out and hire an agent or consult a realtor or an attorney or an accountant or whatever kind of advice they need from the appropriately qualified professional. Mm-hmm. And it goes on further to say that, you know, during the course of the transaction, the buyer's agent may send forms to the seller and ask them to fill them out. Or they may even answer sort of a practical or procedural question about the transaction to keep things moving. But it reminds them that even, you know, even though there will be conversations and documents being sent back and forth between the buyer's agent and that unrepresented seller, that the agent is always working exclusively in the role of the buyer's agent and always acting in the buyer's best interests, and it is not the seller's agent in any capacity. And it's a good idea. I mean, it's it's very, very important to have the seller sign that document up front. But it's also a good idea to remind them throughout the course of the transaction. Let's say you are sending them, you know, the disclosures because you need them to fill those out for your buyer. To remind them at any time you are sending them information or disclosures to say, you know, as a reminder, I represent the buyer exclusively. I cannot advise you about these documents. Mm -hmm. Please seek advice from the appropriate professional if you need it. You know, and you really can't say that enough times. That's right. And the form S, um, seller non-agency is S-N-A. Correct. Um, so you can find that right in zip forms. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a very important conversation is uh, to have is, well, what about my commission? What about my compensation? <laughs> How am I going to get paid? And so we have, of course, a form for that, too. Um, assuming that the seller is willing to pay, you know, pay you. They're just, they don't have their own agent, but they're, they're going to pay you for bringing this buyer in and doing the deal. Mm-hmm. We have a form called the single party compensation agreement, uh, which is form SP. Some people call it like a one party listing, but really what it is, single party compensation agreement is simply says, seller, if you sell to my buyer, then you will pay me X dollar amount. 
And in that form, you can say, I represent the buyer exclusively and establish that. So it, it says it in the form itself, mm-hmm. but the seller is still saying, okay, but at closing, I will pay you, you know, 3% or whatever you guys agree on out of the proceeds. So you still have that written document um, establishing your right to earn your compensation. Very important. Exactly. And, then, and, and that form, actually, if you at some point, the seller says, you know what, I'd like you to represent me too. You mm-hmm. can continue to sure. use that form and just indicate in there. It has a normal agency confirmation section. Yes. So can indicate who you're representing. But I know here we're trying to focus on FSBO sellers. So generally, yeah, you would not. You would just check buyer. Correct. Yeah. And finally, you know, like you just brought up agency confirmation. Just make sure that when you are filling out any document, most importantly, the purchase agreement, in paragraph two, that agency confirmation section, you fill it out to indicate that the buy, you know, that you represent the buyer exclusively and that the seller, you know, has no licensed agent representing them. And get that all confirmed in writing and you can proceed from there. Exactly. So that's pretty much it. Um, that's all our hot topics. That's all of our hot topics for now. Um, but of course, we will be having another podcast shortly, I'm sure, with more hot topics, especially now that the new RPA has come out. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. We're, we never run out of these uh, hot topics to talk <laughs> about. And I think you're right. I think we're going to have a whole new set uh, as we get into the new year and uh, have more, more transactions on the new RPA. Exactly. So we look forward to seeing you all then. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can always be found 24-7 at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and that one-stop shop for all things new RPA. All right. We'll talk to you next month. See you next time, everybody.